0: Welcome everyone uh, to our third podcast in the Reshman Carlos Take On series where we take on many of the issues that you as founders are trying to overcome. Uh, today we have a very special guest. Uh, this week is our seed camp week where we have a lot of the companies uh, receiving mentoring over the course of the week and being considered for our program and we just had an amazing fireside chat with none other than the founder of Moo dot com many of you probably use the cards, uh, Richard Moraz. and uh, we want to kick off maybe with a little bit of how we met
1: yeah, exactly. I wanted to kind of go back to oh seven um, you know I was new to the ecosystem, so I literally relied clearly on Saul and Fred and people like that, their networks, but you got introduced that time. Was that before or after you had gotten a large space and started renting out the desks I can't remember like was that part of your thinking on like, this area is gonna change and this ecosystems should change?
2: We had no plan, but before I answer your, your question, I realize you're wearing a Chuck Norris name badge, which I've just realized that uh, I is Chuck <laughs> Norris. <laughs> <laughs> Makes me feel better when I'm sick. <laughs> Black belts only. Okay, so I, I don't remember where we were or, or what stage we were at, but I mean, to answer the other part of your question, we had no idea that this area was gonna explode in the way that it did. Uh, I suppose we were lucky, and maybe we played a small role in it, being a kind of resident of the area. But um, no, we did. We had no. We had no grand plan.
1: But how did you get roped in into mentoring with Camp? Was it Saul or Fred or?
2: Yeah, I think it was probably Saul. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was here for the first one. Right. I say here, but you know, yeah, yeah, wherever, yeah, Wherever we were originally, I think it was in UCL or, yeah. or something like that. Um, so uh, yeah, someone asked me to do it, and it was it was super interesting and. Um, uh, was delighted to meet some of the companies that were along uh, at that point. But I mean we were still a really small business back then so right. I could probably share more relevant anecdotes ab- about the early days because we were going through much of it.
1: Yeah actually and that's the, that's the kind of topic is uh, downstairs was so all about I think a little more of the future um, of Moo and this is going to be much more about going back to those early days in the past so I'm passing on to Carlos to start with sort of talking about you know the purpose um, Yeah, I
0: think there's um, there's a really great chat on YouTube um, of Simon Sinek on sort of starting with why, yep. and you know, we everybody always gets a kick out of the fact that your first company was called Pleasure Cards, and and you know... You're going to ask why? <laughs> no, not, so, not <laughs> why. I, I know, you know, to some extent, it, it's, it's there's a great video on your website about um, kind of the origins of it and how a little part of you dies every time that mm-hmm. you have to, to mention that, but really just kind of trying to understand not so much the name, but really kind of the, the what, what it was that made you do it in the first place and then also allowed you to then recruit other people to do it with yeah. you?
2: Um, there's probably two two answers, two valid answers to that. Um, I think the, the my original why that led to the creation of the company was probably less about the company, more about me. So the my why was, you know, I, I want to run my own business. I want to create products and put them out there in the world. You know, I was working in the design industry that, that just worked... For for clients, that created work that was up on a wall or it was an event or it was something that was very ephemeral and intangible. So I wanted to take something creative and make something real that, had a, that had a legacy. So that was kind of my why. If you think about the, the why of Moo and the thing that's been true over the 10 years that we've been, that we've been around is really around um, bringing two worlds together, the world of design and the world of technology, and a, a, a kind of desire to make design... More accessible for people. So if I think about what's our why, it's trying to make good design you know f- f- available for everyone. That's where we come from and that's been a kind of constant thread across um, everything that we've done. So
0: design is like one of these things that uh, can be extended to far beyond the, yeah, way, yeah. the way that you refer to it as yeah. you know paper or rectangles um, and one of the topics that has been uh, a criticism of Evernote as of late, has been that they've gone too far away from note-taking, right? They want to become a, a marketplace for many other productivity suites. And, you know, earlier today, when we were at Seedcamp Fireside Chat, you mentioned how you are going to enter new product lines. How do you make that decision of staying within that ethos of design, that, that, that sort of origin that really started things, but not violating the sort of the fundamental rule of early stage, which is, like, focus on the core proposition that your, products, that your customers love you for
2: yep. and not get distracted by their stuff? Well design was the method, not the outcome so much. We wanted, you know, people's think whatever we made to be well designed and for that to be useful, and that, that you know, design, channeling design is a differentiator for customers, whatever it is that we, we give them. Uh, it's more of a kind of design standards or design um, beliefs. So, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think we've always kind of had that overarching theme The company's changed, you know, we've gone in different directions, I won't won't say we pivoted, there was a new word for that I I read the other day, Um, but I've since forgotten it, so I'll just go back to pivoted. But, you know, we we initially started as a B2C business, we initially started with um, a a category that didn't really exist, which was a personal card, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, or pleasure card, inverted commas, as we may otherwise say. Um, and we've subsequently gone from b to c to B2B, really focused on small businesses, built out a range of other kind of complementary things. We're now looking at digital, we're selling it to big companies. So there's been a change in the story along the way, um, how we help people design, providing them with templated designs and other things on route. But it, we're sort of, design is not the outcome, design is the, the, the sort of the journey or the vehicle that we, we, we try and make, make it easy for people to, to travel in. Excellent.
1: So, I mean, it, you know, you talk about kind of, again, where you're taking the business in terms of your goals to add add new facets to it. I mean, in the early days, I find a lot of founders don't really set any goals. I feel like they're kind of aimlessly wandering around with, oh, I have this idea. I think it's going to be disruptive. What did you do to kind of discipline yourself in the early days? Is Do you remember the early goals that you had for, for the business, whether they be, product or revenue or customers, or I don't, you know. Yeah,
2: we always set goals, we always set goals. Um, I think, you know, it was a good discipline that the board brought, the investors brought to us that my team had, they'd been in startups before, so it wasn't, this wasn't a new playground for them. So, we always set budgets, revenue goals, customer goals, you know, kind of Avidora goals, marketing goals, uh, but these were all secondary to what are we setting out to achieve? What do we want the company to become? How's our culture changing? Um, what are our product aspirations? What can we solve? What can we fix? Who are our customers? You know, there were always um, sometimes esoteric, you know, uh, things that we would ask ourselves and that we the direction of travel. Uh, and those changes, well, I mean, it's interesting. We talk about BHAGs and we talk about long-term things. It's okay that that changes in a yeah. funny kind of way because, um, it, you know, you can set out towards a destination like an explorer and say we want to find South America or something. You bump into, you know... Uh, the Caribbean on the way, I'm like hey, this is pretty cool. You know, we'll hang out here for a while, um, and that's what it's all about. Really, is changing your plans of being, being kind of. Um, you need to be flexible in the sense that you need to say, to people, this is the most important thing. We need to go in this direction. But when you find it, you, you need to also be able to say, hey, it's cool. We found this thing, and this is also of interest.
1: And did you? You talked about sort of investors and some of your team coming in to to push that kind of um, focus on goals. Do you, do you feel that there was a tension, or were you as a founder no. just bought into it, and you kind of said? No, Ooh.
2: I I look. I think it's really important that you do that. Otherwise, you're sort of ambling aimlessly, um, and you, you never know when you've succeeded. Then as well, right, right. I think right. it's way too unstructured. So that's that. But that's my my sort of personality type. So
1: I think a key one to being successful too. So hence, uh, hence mm. we wanted to kind of ask on that. Mm. Uh, you want to. Um, Actually, so along that line of, you know, you have goals, and how do you, I mean, talk a little bit about hiring. is like, talent early on changes with talent later on. Yep. You know, how have you thought about attracting the best talent? How do you continue to attract the best talent? You have been up, out there 10 years running. Um, mm. Yeah, how do you, you know, how do you think about bringing on talent?
2: So, there's two critical initial things that are important in there. The first is, um, people want to work for people and people want to work on exciting things. And if you have both of those, um, and your company is successful, you can hire whoever you want, more or less. So initially, we had a good story to tell, and that got a couple of people interested. And those were people that other people wanted to work for. So really our first 10 hires okay. came through the, the, the credibility and the brand, the personal brand of the early employees. So I have a lot to thank, you know, Steph, who was our CTO. Yeah. and, and uh and Brian and Lisa and some of the kind of first twenty guys that we that we employed. And then, you know, if you're working in an interesting space, uh, so your vision is compelling to them, the space is interesting, you're trying to be disruptive, you've got the right people in there that other people want to work for, um, then you start having an impact, hopefully. And that gets people more excited. And then there are all the secondary and tertiary things like, you know, kind of wealth upside stuff. Sure. But you know, that's that's uncertain, frankly, and benefits and all those other things which, which frankly uh, be only become important.
1: No, I think well. the nugget there is your early, uh, early talent hires that they can attract more. Because again, as like a I think, CEO... I think a the good interview, yeah.
2: interview question for your first five employees is who are the five people you'd hire That's if you great. joined? You know, to like, yeah. do that. Yes, exactly. You know, I think if, you're not, if you don't bring five people, if you can't name five people now, either there's something wrong with you. Yeah. Like you either didn't pay any attention to people who worked for you all those years or people don't want to work for you. So, I think you need to hire, like, I'll use this word, but, but very specifically, like, attractive people. I mean, physically attractive, but like, their CV needs to be attractive. They need to have people who are kind of, who read their blogs, who follow them on Twitter, who care about what they have to say. That's, you know, well, I didn't set out with that plan, just yeah, it just happened that no. way, but um, if I was doing it again, uh, I'd do it exactly that way.
0: Actually, no, that, that makes sense. And I think one, one thing that is very similar to hiring employees is hiring investors. Hiring investors. Yeah. Hiring <laughs> investors, and and there's a there's a good uh, Clay Christensen video about hiring a product. Like what 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 job would you hire your product to do? Yep. and I think the same could be said for like hiring investors. Like mm-hmm. you're looking for investors to help you with either expansion or other things, right? I mean, of course, there's always a like, capital that that you could inject just for the sake of capital. But generally speaking, most founders want to have smart money on the table. Mm-hmm. So I think. Um, you 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 do talk about the early days when you had what was it your friend's neighbor your your dad's neighbor's friend that it was a rather spurious connection
2: to my first introduction to someone that had money that did yeah. investing you know quote unquote, and
0: so how did that then transition from that kind of very close family and friends mm-hmm. to the big. Uh, powerhouses of, of really uh, smart, value-add investors that you got in your first institutional round.
2: You imply that our investors are both smart and value-add. Well, <laughs> luckily <laughs> they are. you elaborate luckily, on that? Luckily they are. No, I, um, w- you know, our, our journey was fairly meandering and I wouldn't say that it was constructed or designed in any way. Um, mm. I met Robin Klein before he was a f- kind of the investor that he is today and he invested uh, through his own vehicle. It was, it was, uh, it was really early days. Um, he then, I mean, the, the real story is that he essentially sold some of his portfolio to Index. So Index became an investor by almost by chance in Moo. Um, so when Moo went to making a proper institutional Series A round, uh, Index were already in. So we went out to the market, spoke to a bunch of other people. Atlas wanted to make an investment. They led the round. Index followed. We had two investors and actually they're still the same investors we have today so we've only raised money.
1: And, and on that note I mean they have been supportive all through the decade right and I think I mean we're in this era of a lot of short termism so people <laughs> want to either quick flip or there's a lot of pressure just to you know keep raising more money and mm-hmm. higher valuations and whereas you know you've been very um, conscious about each each step and your investors have been while at the same time they're managing other companies where they are turning over quite fast. So how, you know, how have you kept them so supportive and so kind of... Uh, it's nothing to do with me. I
2: think they're just good investors. I think um, the challenge of being a good investor is you know, shifting between the, the, the rhythm and pace of a $500,000 revenue business and a $500 million revenue business uh, and no one knowing any different. And what's interesting about... I found about investors is actually how reluctant they are to talk about their other companies and in a way I think that's really good because you don't have to sit around chatting about how successful so-and-so is being over there but on the other hand you're sort of quite interested in how well they are doing or you know you know what they've learned and and other things and they're very good at sort of anonymizing all of that, that all of those learnings but you never feel as though they've got a more important meeting to go to which I think is really good a really good yeah. behavior, really good uh, hygiene for an investor, because that's the worst thing. Oh, sorry, you're going to your your new girlfriend's house or whatever. You know, you're going off to go and see someone who's, who's more interesting or who's bigger or who's going to give you a bigger return to your fund. Hmm. So, yeah. the, I mean, I have to say, index both index and Atlas are um, stellar investors, uh, certainly in that in, in that sense.
0: No, that's great. That's great to hear. Um, I guess in many ways, we all want to have that kind of quality investor, but we can't always have them. And one of the things that we constantly get asked uh, by founders is how to, how like rejection stories, you know, like overcoming adversity. And I think the record for one of our companies is 86 no's before they got an investment. Mm. So, and, and that was a lucky sort of, the, the investor had forgotten he had a meeting. So it was that kind of meeting. And so maybe you could share, um, like what's the
2: lamest VC rejection you, you got? Um, the the lamest ones are usually sort of boilerplate, you know. Like, here's my standard response. You know, we're not doing this thing at the time, right? I think, uh, you know, it's tough being an investor because you you also have to kiss a lot of princes uh, frogs before you get a prince. So it's the same kind of experience on both sides. Um, I I think You know, if you have if you have made a decision about why you're not investing, and that's based on some real data that you know or a real perspective that you have. Is your duty to tell that company that, yeah. Say look, it's not for us. That could be the, all you say. It's not for us in terms of your your positioning on the rejection yeah. for yeah. these five reasons. And, and these are the things that we would need to understand. You know, in order for it. Or so tell us about that
0: it. one. Tell us about that one investor that you had a meeting with that rejected you but rejected you with such a uh, level of sort of thoroughness that, that you severely doubt. And the reason why I'm asking this question is because many times founders will get feedback from investors in, in the position of power and influence and knowledge of how many other startups work yeah. that will give them a very good reason as to why it's not going to work. Maybe you can share one yeah, now in mean, retrospect. I mean, we've, we've, uh, you know, we,
2: we've raised very little money. We've raised less than 5 million pounds, You know, and now we're a big, you know, big business still growing very quickly. Um, and hopefully to, to, to some extent, considered successful and we've kind of made it or whatever. Um, I mean it's still a long way to go but by seed cap terms we've kind yeah, of crossed, yeah. crossed that that milestone. Um, I don't know I, you know if your question is investors are savvy uh, appraisers of business and value and whether they're going to get a return on that. They're not necessarily savvy appraisers of whether your business is going to be a different kind of success maybe, you maybe know, not the kind of one that they want. And you need to, so I've had very detailed feedback on why someone is not going to invest. Um, and my take on it is, well, it just doesn't fit your investment profile. Yeah. Now, if it's a criticism of your product that doesn't work well, that's a different story. If it's a criticism of, um, it could be something around, you know, we're concerned about the Acquisition and lifetime value ratio that you're currently operating at, and how the market's changing, or what might happen here, there, or, or wherever. Something you need to look at clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's just you know we want to make five x in three years, and that's just what we do, or you know, prohibitive terms that mean that you know they want a guaranteed return, or something that you know doesn't fit with frankly your uh, you know aspirations. Just make sure that you can kind of put all of those in different buckets. And file away the ones that just don't fit your objectives. Um, you know, we've we've flirted with and had conversations about raising a shit ton of money. Um, m- what you come out of at the end of that stuff is maybe that maybe that isn't the right decision. You know, but I think raising money is a, even if you don't raise money at the end, is an amazing learning experience and. It is the duty of the prospective investor to give you a full and frank account of why they're not doing it. Because it's a hell of a lot of work to go pitch an investor. Yeah. Exactly.
1: That's the, that's the thing. I I we we advise our founders a lot. Is you know they make their list. They get introductions. They they meet all the investors, and you sort of say, well, you spent that hour or half hour or whatnot going in, putting your heart out, of, you know, soul on the table. And if all you walked away with is a no and you have no idea why, you're actually doing you know, yourself a disservice because you, you just work so hard mm-hmm. to make the pitch. You owe it to yourself to know whether it's a, just a you know, boilerplate no, yeah. or whether there is a no because you know, because of a product, or tech, or, a, or actually team. Because yeah. sometimes the founder you know, investor fit can really, cannot be there. And then an investor will say, I just can't work with that person or vice versa. And that's a real important kind of self-awareness moment to, to yeah. have. So I, think that's I mean, I think,
2: um, I, I, no, I won't name names, no. um, but I think one of the more frustrating meetings I took was with someone who uh, said, I'll describe, this is, in my opinion, the worst the worst investor meeting I ever did. And it wasn't the meeting itself that was bad, it was all the things that came on. So first of all, someone reached out, a director of the company, it wasn't an analyst, it wasn't an associate, that a a director reached out. I'm a partner at uh, Santo, blah, blah, blah. Uh, So I said, okay, he he wrote a letter, sent me an email, and I would normally not answer the cold call like that. But I thought, look, interesting. So I responded, and it turns out, actually, he's a business development guy for that business. He's not actually looking at the company. He's just, a, he's just the guy that does right. the cold calling. So that was the first bad uh, kind of uh, step. Then the person that came to the meeting um, was very inquisitive, um, asked lots of questions, um, and I set some some kind of comfortable boundaries around what we were comfortable talking about what we weren't. Um, uh, the meeting ended we'd spent 90 minutes or so there was no thank you follow up there was no real this is for us this isn't for us and I found out about three months later that they're invested in a competitor of ours Mm. I mean that is just like not on it's totally not on Um, I was really angry after that because I felt stupid and like it's a small world you know if if you burn the the whole setup of that whole meeting and everything that I I, I mean, the good news is like we're, we're killing that company on all the KPIs that you know, we put them side by side, but I still felt really stupid afterwards. Yeah, it wasn't, you know, I should have done my DD, but frankly, they have to disclose that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that um,
0: I think, like this kind of valuable feedback, um, is questions that our founders have um, for very specific concerns that they have. Mm. And so we reached out to Seedcam companies to ask them uh, what what they would have loved to have asked you if they had you right here in this room right now, and the first one, uh, maybe Rashmi you can you can share a little bit about what Marco Polo uh, and Justin.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking at them. Some of them are really self-serving. <laughs> but, I, know, I know. Wow. Um, but anyways, so Marco Polo is a is a company that's trying to build a huge um, media business, billion dollar plus media business around kids, mm-hmm. and they're starting with mobile in the digital world, but they will expand into the world of print as in physical toys and and things like that. So obviously, I guess you can imagine the question will be, you know, around kind of how does a startup, especially when you started 10 years ago, a lot of things being, you know, around software, you went into a more heavy duty printing kind of business and how did you manage those kind of cost structure of a printing business and those early with, with the long time it's going to take for you to scale and, and all that well we're lucky
2: because the product there's no inventory it's an on-demand product you lease the machines or you get someone else to print it so i mean we were um our original um tagline was we love to print but the internal joke was that we love to pdf because that's really all we did as a business Interesting, right? we right. took customer orders we turned them into the pdf send sent it to a printer they printed finished gave it back, gave it us back and stuck it in the post and that's 48-hour turnaround. So I'm not sitting on any inventory. I'm not taking very much risk. I've got a real product I'm selling at a high margin. So for us, it wasn't a problem. When we think now about the scale of the business where it's completely vertically integrated, you know, we've got hundreds of people working in production um, and in fulfilment, um, and we think about let's open a new territory, like let's expand, then you're talking about serious investment. But thankfully, we, ha- we, we, haven't, uh, uh, we haven't had to take huge risks uh, in the early stages
1: and actually that keeps you on the cutting edge of even developments in printing tech right because yep. you're not early on tied to owning all of, the, owning all of that inventory and a we, system of working we so. took a view
2: that we should own the stuff that is differentiated mm-hmm. and we should outsource everything that's commoditized so anyone can print a sheet paper mm-hmm. right there, is, there are thousands of HP Indigos which is the machine that we use out there in the world and that's not what we wanted to own we want to own it now because it's a significant margin boost for the business. But the, the vertical integration piece wasn't important. It was, we need to own the process of designing and sending this thing to a PDF and we needed to own the process of um, the fulfillment software because it was important that we shipped it. We, we, not the final, the last mile but they kind of like put it in a box that you designed put it in a pack that you scanned, in the post to make sure it goes fast to the customer. So establishing which elements of the stack you want to own, at what point, and where the real value is in that. So we went from a 40% gross margin to a nearly 80% gross margin now, based on sourcing. Yeah. But you need, to de- you need to decide where yeah. you want to make that margin.
0: No, excellent. Um, another one of our founders, Lucy from BridgeU asks, um, what was the inflection point at which you felt Moo wasn't just a simply struggling startup anymore? Um, basically, what, what, uh, what made it happen what happened so that you didn't feel like you were gonna uh, sink anymore, that you were now swimming?
2: Um, it's a good question and I'm not sure I have a great answer. I mean, being becoming profitable and delivering 12 months of profitability, that's a good feeling. Right. Um, but I always have a healthy, um, you know, nagging concern, a nagging fear. I think, I think for sure.
1: the, the heart of her question, and even Sarah kind of similarly asked that question, I think is we see it with our early founders is until they either just reach profitability on their own, never raising money, and we have a couple companies that do that, or they raise money. It's just you're battling fires so much. So it's not I think feeling of coasting, but I think it's mm. like, oh my God, I'm just going to die at any moment because I'm battling so much. I can mm. never get my head out. To just think slightly
2: longer term. And so I so there's, a, there's a nice analogy that um, that I heard recently, which is when you feel as though you're working on the business, not in the business, that's when you know you've turned the corner. When you're working in the, as a CEO, yeah, yeah. when you're working in the business, you're like, you know, putting out fires, you're you know, you're getting really operationally involved in everything, but you know, in a way, it's the same sort of feeling that you might have before you start the business. When you're working on the business, you're working on the plan, you're not actually doing anything, you're just kind of crafting the idea, doing the, and, and that's, you know, when you're in moments of working, you know, on the business, and thinking about how you're gonna go, that's, that's not coasting, but it's not, you know, fighting fires. Now that's, um, that's a good point. Um, so Sarah, as, as uh, Rachel mentioned, she
0: asked another question, Sarah from Colony, She asks, um, how did you balance attention to detail? Earlier you mentioned you were OCD about many things, but how did you balance that between the design of your products and the wider demands of running a a business as a CEO across the very stage
2: of the company's growth? Um, You have to um, metaphorically uninstall the program um, that that does the work. So, I mean, I literally uninstalled Photoshop and Illustrator early on and I hired someone who had it, who had that nailed. You know, yeah. Denise Wilton joined the business, and she was just a great designer, and she really got the brand, what well, she created the brand. And so, kind of replacing software with people, or replacing things that you do yourself with people, or other things, um, you know, super, super important. But it's hard, because in a way you want, you still want to control things, you want to dive in, you just need to pick your battles, because if you're always diving in, you're the fulcrum of the whole business, and everything fails. So ultimately, you need to you need to think about what are all the things that you think are important. Where are all those points of OCD? Either assign a, a role or a goal to someone, or bring someone in to do that thing. Rashma,
0: it's clear. I'm going to uninstall email from your <laughs> computer. That's um, how
1: I got. That's why I got sick today. So then now I don't have to be on the stage, right? Yeah, so that's true. That's yeah. Uh, yeah. It's uninstalling. Of, that's uninstalling my cords. voice.
0: Yeah. Okay. Cool. <laughs> Um, Al uh, from Formissimo. Well, I think that's the last question. So, yeah, this yeah. The, yeah, this is the last question. Uh, he has to head out. Um, Al from Formissimo asks um, You took $5, millions of, five million in funding the first two years after you started MOOC. But when you were looking for investment, what was the metric that really stood out? That, especially because it was so early, a lot of these founders are trying to figure out like, what is it that will impress someone? Like what is it? Is it user base? Is it clicks? Is it
2: whatever? Especially in lack of any kind of real material yeah. revenues. Well we 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 didn't have revenues, and we didn't have metrics because we weren't really live. It was it was we had a good team, we had a complete a unique prospect, we had some defensible IP, and we had probably the metric was partnerships. We were talking to Flickr, but none of the guys mm. in the point we said, we do this deals with X, we do that deals with Y that you know, etc., etc., etc. So it was a pipeline, where you just knew it was either going to work or it wasn't going to work. You are going to know in, t- in six months.
1: I think that's great. And I was just great. like last night. I was reading the tweet about SendGrid. Wrote a whole blog post about using Stamplay. Yeah. And it's like that moment when a big company like SendGrid it's, it's uses a companies. startup product, like a t- tiny little startup product, and it can be that that sort of turning point, right? So this was awesome. Thank you. Some great nuggets. um
0: And we look forward to chatting with you guys again soon. Thanks, Richard. Thanks.